And following now on all of those presentations, we'll have a questions and answers session here. First of all, Katrina Crow, can I ask you, land was central, the president emphasized that as many other speakers did, but the Land Commission records, for instance, which you mentioned, are not available. Now, they are a treasure trove, hugely important. They are public records, and they ought to be available. They certainly should be, John. It's been a bone of contention since they were rescued from the back of what is now the Marion Hotel back in 1992. Uh, at that point, they were transported under very difficult circumstances to the National Archives building in Bishop Street, and thereafter they went down to a warehouse in Port Leash, where they still are. And repeated attempts by scholars like Dr. Terry Dooley, who is extremely interested in, in the land question, have failed to get the Department of Agriculture, who are the legal entity who have control over these records to release them. It is at this point uh, illegal to have them not available. In ways, I suppose we can uh, account for it a little by the fact that the National Archives Act is relatively new, 1986, but still, it, I'm hoping that perhaps it is partly as a result of the discussion we're having today and uh, that there'll be a resurgence of interest in getting them out Registry there. of Deeds would be another archives are the registry of deeds and the land registry. Yeah. The land registry in many ways is more important because that is completely closed, but that archive contains the instruments of transfer of land, largely between parents and children, and they're very revealing about what is allowed to the older people in the house uh, when they hand over to their son. Or and they'd be especially suited, and in fact the only way they could be handled <coughs> would be digitally, wouldn't it, by... by it's not online, the only way, online, but it but would be a much better way. Much better way, It yeah. would make it more they, accessible. They, Same with the Registry of Deeds, which goes back to 1708, so it covers a very long period of time. So it's something we've ignored. Uh, these archives really would change scholarship on the whole issue of land ownership, transfer, possession, dispossession, uh, yeah. the arrangements that were made in the new state. They would tell, tell us so, so much more, wouldn't they? Uh, President Higgins... You'd be supportive, obviously, of that well, initiative. Very much so. I, I think uh, it, it, it's just so important. Certain, the Land Commission as well in relation to developing uh, an, uh, the history of the land and land ownership, not just for the people involved, but also the, the sizes and the changes in sizes of holdings and what is happening. I, I would I'd say absolutely, uh, I think it's, would, it would be so valuable. I would strongly support uh, what Katrina is saying, yes. Margaret. If you recognise that the Land Commission from 1881 was initially setting what they called a fair rent, which was believed to be interfering in the status of property, which is why Tories objected to it. And then subsequently, by the, end, by the early 20th century, involved in the sales, the amount of social history contained in these archives is literally transformative. I think their importance, as Katrina suggested, would probably exceed anything that we already have. I mean, it, it, it's remarkable. And the que I'm reminded of Kavanagh's lines, who owns this half a root of rock, mm -hmm. this no man's land surrounded by our pitchforked armed claims. There would be a lot of history and local history and family history. Everything, you know, yeah, it would be remarkable, absolutely yeah. remarkable. I mean, of course, I haven't seen them. <laughs> so I'm assuming that if the records have been kept properly, as one assumes they have, that, that, that there will be this vast 
tract of material there. Endless, endless volumes of fair uh-huh. rent registers giving really clear detail about what was going on in different places. I said they're almost a replacement for the lost census records of 1881 and 1890. So it would transform the history of the second half of the 19th century, utterly. Yeah. And obviously, that was a period, John Cunningham, I think you mentioned uh, this, that, that in a way, because you, you asked, was there, a revol- was there a revolution? Question mark. Indeed. Um, and they were, in a way, it was the land acts and the, it, it was the, the amount of land which had been transfer- transferred from tenant to farmer. There's nothing more conservative than a, a, a tenant who's become a farmer with 30 acres. Well, arguably, indeed, yeah. Um, I, I suppose, um, with regard to uh, the record, to understand the, uh, the, the the process at the lower lower level, which is uh, what something we must understand if we're to uh, understand the general uh, dynamics. Um, uh, yes, that, 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 that this would um, open up uh, to transform social history, I think, and local history in Ireland. Uh, I just wonder um, if I can ask uh, Katrina, uh, what would it take in terms of the resources that are required? Enormous resources went into uh, putting the making the Bureau of Military History records available. Not enormous at all. It yeah. cost very little, actually. Digitisation has become much cheaper, for example. A lot of the the, the Land Commission records are, as Margaret suggested, in good order already. They're, they're, they're where they should be in terms of uh, the, the cataloguing of the collection. Um, it wouldn't take that much, to be honest. It takes the will to do it, as so much more in this country. If somebody had the will to do it, this could be done. And similarly with the Land Commission records, or the Land Registry yes. records. Um, partly it's because of under-resourcing of the National Archives, who do not have enough staff to take on any of this. The same would apply to another huge uh, cohort of records. The, what, the reason census. I was mentioning digital access is that rather like the census, mm-hmm. it is they're of special interest to yeah. the researcher who's who wants to know what happened that 30 acres. Yeah, absolutely. Digital access is a tool. Yeah. It's a tool for dissemination to, to much, a much broader cohort of people than the ordinary paper records for which you have to come to a repository and visit you there. You have to travel. But it's only you know, a tool. Somebody has to we bring have, them out to you and so on, but they're yeah, made but for digital in my opinion. Let's point, remember, yeah. we have just realized how dangerous digital records are, mm. uh, how easy it is to, to screw it up. There is another important point, the important distinction between the agricultural sector and farming. It is the only record we would have of what farming was in all its diversity at different levels of size of farm and different relationships to the farm in terms of labour. From once, if, from once you go past the lost land commission records, you're into discussion of sectors and output, but not of farming. So it's of crucial interest in relation to understanding what the history of Irish farming families and their lives. On the question of sources, Arnsberg and Kimball, for instance, that you quoted, I mean, that is a repository, isn't it? An extraordinary record. And it, it's a matter of fact that it was these two American anthropologists who came to Clare and recorded just in time a way of life that was vanishing. 
1934, there's the Harvard study. It's preceded by a, a physical uh, study that, that there's going on. The expert on it, I think, would probably, I, I would think, uh, Professor Anne Byrne, uh, our, our colleague of John's. But, uh, and then they added additional chapters to produce. The Irish Countryman is 1934. The parishes of Luke and Rhinomona, and then you, in, you get they add in chapters to give you family and community in Ireland, which appears in the uh, in the nineteen sixties. The interesting side of it is it, it, it's, it's a kind of neat model, but they had consultations with Mr. de Valera. They were facilitated by Bishop Fogarty, and they found a consensus, really, in my, in my view. I've, I've raised some questions about it because the county clear of that time was, as I have described it in my paper, people were fighting over land. There were horrific uh, uh, about music, about the, the 1934 the Dance Halls Act. They, it, it's, and I think what, what is, but it is, it, it, when I went to study postgraduate myself, people would ask you about the Ironsburg Kimball study. It was the most known, most quoted uh, account of Ireland uh, in anthropology circles for a long, long time. And a new edition from Clare County Council, it's still in, still in print. I think that I'd say so Professor Byrne and, and Tony Farley and Chris Carton and others who have done very valuable Katrina Clear, can I come to you? Why were women so invisible for so long? I think one thing that's coming out today is that you'll only find in history what you look for. When you when you look, you will find people. Uh, Linda looked for the records of violence in the newspapers. She found them. I've been looking, for example, at women novelists, writers, essayists, biographers, hagiographers in the 1920s to the 1950s. I've been looking in the newspapers. I've been finding them. They've been published. You know, we all started to ask questions about women in history about 40 years ago in, in this country because of the feminist revolution, I suppose, if you want to call it that. And therefore, that's what we found. Um, you have to kind of, you'll always find when you're, it's the questions you ask, you know, really. So I think that's it. We've become more interested in women's participation, women's role, women's mentalities, all that over the past while. And that's why we're finding them more and more. And the more questions we're asking, the more we're finding. And about men as well. A lot of men that we don't hear about, not necessarily working class men, but other male writers that have disappeared as well. So, you know, there is, they're all there. And do you think fiction now as a source of history, what's your view of that? Well, I think you have to be very careful using fiction as a source, you know, but I do think it's kind of interesting to see what was preoccupying people in the period. Um, the, the, the theme of women having to choose between love and work or love and their mission to serve Ireland. This was a common enough theme um, in uh, fiction in Ireland. But of course, the theme of women, strong-minded women, since the novel began, or, you know, if you go back to Jane Austen, any of those novelists, you always get strong-minded women in, according to the, the mores of their time in fiction. British fiction around this time as well had this theme of conflict, women being conflicted between love and work and so on. So it shows you Ireland wasn't actually that much different from yeah. other countries. Linda Connolly, on gender-based violence, isn't it also the case that euphemisms will be used, matters will not necessarily be recorded? It's in the nature of the evidence, isn't it, that that will be the case? 
absolutely. So, so some of the cases I've been looking at, I tend to use uh, documents that are very clear as to what happened. But there are a whole range of other kinds of terms. You know, even the term outrage, for example, is sometimes used where if it's a, 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 a first-person testimony by a woman, she might refer to something that happened to her. One of the sources I looked at, for instance, where a girl was being watched in County Tipperary. She had, was visiting the barracks after work. She worked in a chemist shop. And she describes the manner in which she was searched, um, having been followed by the IRA. And to me, that reads as a sexual assault, but she didn't use that terminology. Likewise, you know, the terms we use today, sexual harassment, for instance. Uh, again, you can read uh, a report uh, or even some of the, the witness statements where events are described. And to me, reading that as a contemporary observer, that's, that's what it was. But that was not the language um, of the time, certainly. And I suppose the, the agency that, that women have today, perhaps, in terms of calling out something like that, simply didn't exist. So um, having said that, women did have agency, of course. Um, you know, they, they, um, you know they, they wanted to have relationships and friendships with men. So, so there was this tension, I suppose, between the policing of sexuality, uh, which I called it earlier, and then I suppose the choice of women, uh, you know, to engage in relationships or friendships um, that, that maybe didn't necessarily fit uh, with the expectations, the social expectations. Mm. And uh, John Cunningham, you mentioned the Irish ecclesiastical record, for instance. Yes. That's a mine of information, isn't it, on the mentality of the priest? So, because they had their agony column as well. Indeed, yeah. And uh, certainly, I think I referred to the mother and baby home specifically, but there are debates going on over uh, months and years about a whole range of uh, social issues. And you can see the uh, differing opinions, uh, uh, say, um, uh, Sir Joseph Glind men mentioned another Galway person um, was uh, from, 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 from uh, Gort. He was head of the Vincent de Paul for an extended period. He has quite um, very interesting um, observations, which are somewhat at odds with the with the clerical um, uh, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the with the clerical interventions. I think he counsels against placing religious in charge of mother and baby homes, for example, because nobody would go into them if if um, if religious were in charge. But uh, uh, we, we know different uh, now. But I mean, there are these. Uh, quite um, uh, interesting and resonant uh, debates, and I think, uh, I think, as I, I mentioned, in terms of thinking about imagined futures, uh, these the future was being very concretely and tangibly uh, being uh, created, really, uh, and planned in uh, the pages of. Uh, of, 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 of that particular journal and a number of others as well at the time. But in terms of women's experience, for instance, I mean, you're saying of violence say, against women, that's, that would be unlikely to find its way into the Bureau of Military History uh, archive, which after all was being collected in the 40s and 51 up to that sort of period looking back. So it's, the testimony yeah. is 30 years old anyway. That's right. I'm, I think, reminded here of um, 
a, a pension application from, uh, again, another Galway woman, uh, um, from um, Athan Rai. Uh, she was um, uh, married as, as Mrs. Nelly, again, in Gort, but she spoke about uh, being at my old in 1916, and there's a reference there. Something happened. She is there with a lot of others. But um, you just wonder, because she went home, something happened and I went home. So uh, how do you read that uh, in a letter that was uh, communicated uh, 30 years later when she was justifying her application for, for a pension and the something that happened, uh, her abandonment of uh, the, the, her, her station, as it were, in, um, in 1916, in my old, was possibly what was yeah. denied. Did I also pick up pension. from what you were saying that there was too much in our history of sort of ambushes and the physical force violence, and there's so much more. There are many other layers that we need to be exploring. Yeah, well, I was trying to make a case uh, for revisiting some of the uh, mass mobilizations, whether they were um, relating to labor or to agrarian um, struggle. Um, in, specifically in the years that we're, we're talking about, there's the movement uh, from the West, uh, where such movements often emanated in the previous decades, the um, land seizures around 1920, uh, which uh, created a response in, on the part of the um, emerging state, which was uh, quite um, uh, quite um, uh, uh, determined that this must be uh, that this must be stopped because it was creating divisions among the nationalist people, essentially class divisions in, uh, within agriculture, I suppose. And Margaret O'Callaghan, partition itself, which came in just... Can I just pick up yes, on that yes. there? Uh, you talk about the Irish ecclesiastical record. Yeah. Well, I suppose one of the things published there were the quarterly statements of bishops and archbishops during that period. So if we want to try and approach what's thinking about women, one of the ways to look at it is to look at their statements and public pronouncements from the early 20s onwards. Yeah. And it's quite interesting that, first of all, in 1919 and 1920, they're condemning violence. Every individual act of violence is an act of violence. By 1921-22, they're retrospectively sanctioning that which they had formerly condemned. But by about 23-24, they're expressing all this anxiety about a lack of moral probity, a collapse in moral values uh, 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 and it's mostly focused upon analysing the sexual behaviour of women yeah. so, so if your I daughter think we need to creatively the, I think we I need can, to creatively yeah. read these sources I suppose mm, I and can. look at those sermons and say what are they really about you know they're kind of about violence then during the civil war they say violence is a degenerating malaise that's yeah. come upon I can remember the, just um, one phrase from a Lenten pastor I've forgotten the bishop but if your daughter comes home late from a dance, lay the lash upon her back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What he said was, he said, if your daughter is home late, leave the lash upon her back. It was the old way and the good way. 
And they, the, the other important part about that is, if you want the revision, was that as you can, the Irish newspapers, uh, is they, there was a kind of a hierarchy of, of, uh, of Linton pastorals. They were all published. Uh-huh. At great length and, 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 and in great detail. Length, yes. Yes. And uh, Dr. Michael Brown, the Bishop of Galway, as a moral theologian, would very often lead off the week. And it's uh, in one of his that you have that phrase uh, about leave the lash upon her back. And uh, yeah. I think. So, where, how many questions then, how many layers have we opened up today? Gender, class, uh, the, and land. They're very, very big issues, and they remain. A lot of work for scholars to continue doing, isn't that the case? Katrina, are you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, as an archivist, this is all grist to our meal, or should be. Uh, the, the more that, that archives can be made available, that people can consult. And I'd like to make a little bit of a protest for the, the, in defense of the Bureau of Military History. Because one of the interesting things they did, and you made the point, John, and you're perfectly right, they are some decades after the events they're describing, and therefore have to be treated with caution. But one of the things they asked people to do is ask them about their ideology. How did they get involved in the nationalist movement in the first place? All of that is fascinating information that isn't to do with ambushes and uh, shootings and all the rest of it. There's a lot more to the Bureau, and particularly to the pensions files, than, than simply the accounts of engagements of that took use place. Them really, it really is a question of how you interrogate the material. A lot of it is online now, which means you can search it in all kinds of different ways, and that allows for endless, I think, interrogation. There is, I, I always describe the pensions files as a sort of shadow social history of a certain part of Ireland uh, during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, because you get details of poverty and ill health and all of those things that don't come to us in any other way. So I think they're very useful. That does not in any way mean that the, the land records aren't badly needed. They really, really are. Nor does it mean that exploration of the local newspapers uh, is not a fantastic endeavour and far easier now that they have been digitised, that you can search those in a way that you yes. couldn't before. Some of those local journalists were, they were sometimes known as penny aligners from Drumcondra. Yeah. This was because they were paid a penny a line, so that's why they wrote at such great length and gave detailed ex, uh, exposition. There were st- many times they were stenographers rather than reporters, but that is now to our advantage since yes. we have the record. Oh, I do think that there, is a, there are huge omissions that we haven't gone near yet. Uh, for example, the whole history of what I would like to say, the people in the cottages. And if you look, no more than it isn't just the bishops who were uh, suggesting that the society was falling apart and it was mostly on a, on a base of sexuality. There was a very strong uh, support in parishes and from voluntary organisations and others who were supporting uh, very, very much this, this notion. And when you actually look at the newspaper accounts, it's directed against the, the people who are the, the, the lower lower the lower income people people who are some casually employed and you have the phrase again and again and it, it, it's a very interesting lesson for Ireland in the present time uh, about its inability for example uh, to to even achieve the notion that uh, of an equality in relation to, to housing it is about the phrases that were used about the people in the cottages and, and it's it, but one thing and not just be pessimistic about it uh, isn't it uh, you might well ask historians might well have like to investigate
investigate. At what point in Ireland do we decide that building large housing estates was somehow or another the wrong thing to do? Uh, it is to the great credit of that I think that 50,000 labourers' cottages were built mm-hmm. um, uh, between the, the 1880s and, and 1920. Then you move on to the urban housing and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And this is what you don't really hear, is that these people were deeply committed to education and to making the country work. Mm-hmm. And they actually, they're very, no more than, as I said, the graziers capturing the renting of the land. Another class in Ireland had captured the professions. And it is the people who actually came through this public housing and so forth, getting the right to have education for the first time, were going into the professions. So the, the, the class element in it is quite, the, the, the omissions are very serious. Right. Can I finally ask you then, President Markner, its next phase? Well, we will publish the proceedings of the first three now, if it, and uh, it will include the discussion that came after in each case of Magna 1, 2, 3. And uh, Magna 4 uh, is organised. It will deal with settlement systems and civil strife. Uh, I have Professor Dermoth Ferreter, Professor Mary Daly, Professor Fagel McGarry, Dr. Dahi O'Coron, Dr. Margaret O'Kelleher in November. And then I hope to have two uh, next year. So that will be six in all. And the two next year will, I think that the next one will probably very much deal with the civil war, deal with the, the, that period. And then as I go into next year, really the formation of the, the states that emerged afterwards. And uh, so we have three completed. We will another one in November and two next year. Thank you very much. And my hope, this is the next three, we will have audiences and we'll be able to be out of our present cloud of restrictions. May I thank you, President, for the invitation to chair. And also, um, thanks to our speakers today, to John Cunningham, Linda Connolly, Margaret O'Callaghan, of course, Katrina Crowe and Katrina Clear. And that concludes our discussion today and the third session of MOCNIF 100. I hope that you found it stimulating and thought-provoking. The President is on record as believing that the latter years of the decade of centenaries encompassing the treaty divide, civil war and the embedding of partition will prove among the most challenging of this decade of centenaries. And it is these centenaries which fall next, of course, in the calendar. And the next seminar in this Machnev 100 series will take place in November. It's entitled, as we've heard, Settlements, Sisms and Civil Strife. We include contributions from Dermot Ferreter, Mary Daly, Fergal McGarry, Dohio Coroin, Margaret O'Kelleher. Please join us then. Further details of how to watch will be available closer to the date on the President's website, president.ie and on rte.ie. Indeed, all three Machnev 100 sessions are available on these platforms president.ie and the RTE player. Thank you for joining us at this session, which came to you from Oris and Uktaran.